This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Mefiotes here. We do have a special weekend episode for you today from the Australian Politics Podcast, featuring none other than Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Ahead of Parliament restarting this week, Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy, speaks to the Prime Minister about everything from his leadership style to the voice to Parliament and whether he would have pursued the controversial AUKUS agreement, which inflamed tensions with France, differently to Morrison. Okay, here's Catherine Murphy. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're on Australian Politics with Catherine Murphy. And bizarrely, this week, we are not in the pod cave. We are in a secret location. You are. <laughs> the Prime Minister's <laughs> looking at me with a fair amount of alarm at this point. Anyway, look, my guest, Anthony Albanese, Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, we're obviously having a chat because the parliamentary year is about to, oh, God, start both bells, you know, with all bells on. Did really. it ever end? No, but the parliamentary year, I mean. Obviously, Indeed. obviously politics never stops, but the parliamentary year is about to start. And also uh, I spoke uh, on, oh, I can't remember how many occasions uh, with the PM before he was the PM on the podcast. We used to have actually regular chats in the olden times about all kinds of interesting things. I don't think I've had you on the pod since you were PM. You've rejected me, Catherine. Well, well, I don't know about that. But anyway, I just think we've got lots to talk about. And I want to open the conversation not by plunging into a bunch of issues that we are going to plunge into in a little bit, but by talking about leadership more generally. Because I reckon there'll be a lot of listeners who will be quite intrigued by um, how you found the transition to from being leader of the opposition to being the Prime Minister, um, what habits you might have uh, picked up in order to help you manage an obviously really difficult, intense job. Um, and also, uh, I think I want to get into the idea of ensemble leadership, which I think is what you've been trying to demonstrate really over the last six months. And that's quite interesting. So let's start, uh, just before we started recording, I reminded the PM that, uh, there was a great profile of Barack Obama a couple of years ago in Vanity Fair, which went to a lot of questions about how he managed the really intense job of being president. I just want to throw you a quote to start the conversation. So he spoke about the first night he slept in the White House after he was elected. So he said, the first night you sleep in the White House, you think, oh, okay, I'm here. I'm sleeping here. Then in the middle of the night, you startle awake and there's this sense of absurdity. There's such an element of randomness in who gets to do this job. <laughs> then he says, you basically, he was, he was a week into the presidency. Like it took him about a week and then he felt his his body caught up with him that he'd arrived that he this is the presidency I'm here this is really happening on we go so can you go back to the first night that you occupied one of the official residences and like what that was like that sort of oh my god I won I think I had a big advantage which of course was not planned by me the fact that the election was May 21. On May 23, I was sworn in at 9am as Prime Minister of yeah, Australia. Yeah. And by 12 noon, I was in the air on the <laughs> way right. yes, you were to, going to, 
Tokyo. Yeah. In the prime ministerial plane. So the government plane has a meeting room on it and I was briefed all the way up and all the way back uh, from the head of defence, foreign affairs, people from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I had so much to do in terms of briefings and that made, I think, a short-circuited the transition Mm -hmm. so that on day two, by the Tuesday morning, I was meeting with President Biden, Prime Minister Kashida and Prime Minister Modi. I was clearly on the international stage and that, I think, really helped to concertina yeah, the yeah, transition. Yeah. Right, interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I think both publicly as well. Uh, normally there's this period of who's going to do what job. We had a swearing-in of uh, five key ministers yeah. Yeah. Uh, that first morning. Uh, that was a decision. There hadn't been the normal caucus processes and all of that slow dynamic that goes through. So I got back on the Wednesday uh, evening and then back down to, to Canberra again. But I think that really helped and as well the public saw oh, well, there's been a change of government. We yeah. had journalists with us, of course, on that visit as well. So that really fast-tracked everything. I kept staying at my home in Marrickville for some time before I moved into Kirribilli when I was in Sydney, but uh, I got to go to the lodge probably two weeks after the election, yeah. I think, yeah. uh, and uh, the lodge, I'd never been upstairs in the lodge before. Um, I had no idea what to expect. There's lots of little rooms off mm -hmm. uh, two main corridors. There's like two wings almost to it. It's a lot bigger than my old house, let me yeah. say that. Yeah. And there are still elements when I wake up there at the the lodge and it uh, hits me, mm. the, the significant change which is there. The Kirribilli, of course, uh, the Cooks River is a beautiful river, but it's not quite no, not quite Sydney that. Harbour. Not quite Sydney Harbour. <laughs> so it, it's very different, uh, that dynamic, plus the whole dynamic of a lot more is done for you yep. as the Prime Minister. I'm, I'm incredibly self-sufficient, re uh, the way that uh, my home has always been. People get a shock who visit me at home and see everything being very neat and mm. in place. And my world is very different now and that's something that... Takes some I, getting used to. It, it, and I hope in a way that I never get used to it. Yeah. Because once you get used to it, you're taking it for granted. And a whole lot of things that make your life easier, which are common sense to make your life easier... Uh, things that other people spend a lot of time organising and putting in place, uh, the security arrangements, the arrangements to get me from A to B. You don't fly commercially in part because of security issues, uh, but it means you can get from 
A to B easy. I mm, flew on efficient. Friday. Mm. I flew from Devonport to Bendigo. I don't know that many planes have ever gone from Devonport <laughs> to Bendigo. No, it's not a conventional route, no. <laughs> it's no. certainly not a commercial route that's yeah. about to open up. Yeah. But that means you can get a lot more done. It's an efficiency mechanism as well. Mm. And President Obama said in this piece that the thing that he found that changed the most for him was just on your point, right, that, that a lot is scheduled for you, a lot is done for you in order to keep you doing the job you need to do, right? He said that the big change for him was that sort of almost all spontaneity left life. You lost those opportunities where, you know, you, you wake up at you come to at 10, 10 p.m. and you you need a magnum <laughs> and you go down to the 7-Eleven and you get it, right? And then you bump into someone and you hear a story and and that sort of sets your evening on another path or sets you thinking in another way. He said just all of that from, from life just went and he found that quite disorienting at a human level. Is is, is similar, different? Oh, oh, it is. I used to, I'm one of those people who would shop for what they were cooking that night, yeah, and now I can't just drop into a shop if you need something. I, I need a bike pump at the moment. <laughs> well, if anyone could send the Prime Minister a bike pump, I'm sure he'd be very grateful. I have, um, for the, the, the bikes there at the lodge, I look at it, but I need to plan and and there needs to be an advance party to the bike pump shop. No, no, exactly. Um, Exactly. It is much more difficult. So I've done things like I bought, it sounds absurd, but I bought like enough shampoo and vitamins and that sort of (laughs) This does not sound absurd. Knowing you, this does not sound absurd. For for Mm. like at least six months. Yep. uh, Because going to the shop is just requires a massive difficult. It, yeah, it yeah, requires massive, a, massive effort. A, a, a major effort. Yeah. Buying people Christmas presents. Mm. I can't just go from shop to shop to shop in the way that you would normally do. You yeah. just uh, wander around. But um, it is something that can be frustrating. You can't just drop into the pub as what I used to do mm. and you would meet people who – I know people at various establishments around the inner west where I could always find someone to, hey, do you want to drop up for a beer and a game of pool? Mm. Uh, it's far more complex mm. these days to and, do that. And in terms of um, obviously it's necessary, right, um, And which was sort of your point, it's it's necessary but it, it, it changes your life in all sorts of ways and sort of like pivoting now to the style of leadership that you're exhibiting in the first several months of the government, which is, I think I'd use the word ensemble leadership, right? It's not just you. There's other there's other players on the stage. Collegiate is the term that I'd use. Well, it's, yeah, it's something sort of vaudevillian about it, though, but in a good way. But anyway, um, so it's sort of like those things need to change. But I suppose the risk for you as Prime Minister, particularly a Prime Minister who has sort of organically networked your entire life, right, the job can cut you off. The job can, uh, yeah, because people start lying to you, right? Like they don't, they don't want to offend the prime minister. So they, they lie. They don't necessarily tell you what you need to know or what you, what you need to hear. They self-censor. Um, 
Do you have any of that sense that people are sort of changing around you courtesy of the status of the office or has have you not noticed much of that? Look, there is a change in how people who see you on the street address you, obviously. You go from some recognition to a lot more recognition. Uh, but people, I think part of the Australian character is that people will just treat you as who you are and I'm the same person and I try to stay grounded. I have very consciously, though, done some things that seem as though they'd be more difficult than they actually are. What do you like, mean? Like I've, I, I continued to play in the Sydney Badge Tennis Comp last year and I've enrolled again uh, this year. Now I won't be able to play every week and mm -hmm. I'm a reserve. The comp goes for 14 weeks. But hanging out with people who I've known for years at Marrickville, Lawn Tennis Club, I'm just me there. Like I'm not treated any differently there from how I was treated beforehand. Mm. I just come to the club with additional friends mm. these days. Yes, yes, some <laughs> friends from the constabulary. Yes, <laughs> don't, right. don't mind my friends. Um, mm. So I think that's really important and uh, I have a – bunch of people I grew up with who I still keep in contact with and engage with. I, I spoke with my best friend from school, from primary school, I spoke with last week. And I think that engagement with people who are not part of the system this, this here. Life. This life, yeah. Uh, uh, is really important uh, that you maintain those connections. Uh, I didn't make a lot of rugby league games last year, but at South I'm just the same person I always was and hang with the, the same people I've hung with for a long time mm. um, there. I think you have to make a conscious decision to do that and I, I tried to do that. It is difficult in this job because... Some people will, who you meet with, will, I guess, hold their fiery, their, mm. their views on things. But there's enough people around me as well. I, I have a very strong core of people, political friends, who will tell me exactly what they think as well. Mm. Now, some of those uh, work in this building, but many of them don't. Uh, many of them are just people who uh, work in private or public sector jobs who I continue to engage with and catch up with, not as much as I used to because I'm busier. Mm. Uh, but I think that's really important as well to have people who will tell you if they think that you've got it wrong. Mm. And in terms of the, I don't suppose you want to name names, in terms of who's around in your orbit, who's been influential for you in the transition? I think people will see who they are and will know who they are. Really, they're the key members of the government, but also uh, people like uh, Tim Gartrell and the people who 
have worked with me mm. uh, for a long, long period time. of time. Yeah, and you brought people um, back too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some people came back who worked for me when I was uh, last a minister. But there's uh, a bunch of people in this office who I have been friends with and engaged with professionally as well for a very long period of time. There are three or four people I went to university mm. with and yep. was uh, active in Young Labor with in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, Nathan's godfather uh, works in this office now. He had never worked for me before. He uh, agreed to come and to bring his expertise outside of this building for decades mm. into this office. And that that brings me a sense of trust, but as well, there are people who will tell me exactly what they think as well. I have tried to surround myself with people who are not just yes people mm. but who have ideas and capacities and part of that capacity is to be honest about their views and one of the reasons why I doubt whether there's anyone in this building who has as many long-term staff as I do I think that says something about the culture that I've always cultivated in an office where I'm, you know, my name's on the door, but everyone has a responsibility to making sure that the the output yeah. is yeah. as good as possible. Everybody, everyone has some ownership, which again brings us back to the ensemble and this sort of retro return of, you know, government by cabinet. You know, your ministers are, well, they appear to be, I don't know, maybe there's all kinds of fur flying behind the scenes and foot stamping and everything else, but everybody seems to be owning their own portfolios, running policy in their areas, and you're not styling yourself in messianic terms, at least not yet. Like maybe maybe you will grow so enormously fond of yourself that you'll need to burst through and, you know, be, be at the centre of everything. While you are clearly running the show, all these other people are out and about prosecuting agendas in a leadership sense. Like how does that work? How, does, how do you facilitate that? Leadership isn't about uh, thinking that you always know best. Leadership is about listening as well as leading and the capacity of people in the ministry uh, that I have is just exceptional. Uh, you have a, a bunch of people who have served as senior ministers in the government uh, past, Penny Wong, uh, Tony Burke, Chris Bowen, uh, Katie Gallagher as Chief Minister of the ACT, people who have not served as ministers before like Ed Husick and Anna Lee and Christy McBain really serious people coming through and then an incredibly talented backbench as well. And I think the job of leadership is to maximise the capacity of the organisation that you lead. And you do that by having faith in people, uh, making clear what the overall direction of the government is going to be but also recognising that 
you can't run a federal government from the PMO. Uh, you have to have faith, not just in people who are elected members of the Cabinet, the Ministry, the caucus, but also of the public service, mm. maximising the respect that you give them. You'll get more out of them if they are focused on achievement and they know that they are valued. On staff as well, the same attitude I have in the office uh, here as well, I encourage that openness and engagement from officers uh, across the board. And when we had the Christmas party here at the end of uh, last year, uh, we had uh, just at one of the areas down there, the, the National Portrait Gallery, the feeling in the room of that sense of, in ideological terms, that sense of collectivism mm. uh, was tangible. You could feel it. And that sense of being a part of something big, uh, which being in government provides you with the opportunity to achieve. Uh, so I made the very conscious decision that I would when I became opposition leader, lead in the way that I wanted to lead in government because I think that it, it flows naturally through. So Tony Abbott, some people would argue, was a successful opposition leader. So if we go back and find a podcast, we would have discussed this in the past. Mm -hmm. He was not my role model because mm -hmm. I think that the way that he acted as opposition leader uh, meant that when he came into government, um, it was impossible to just flick a switch and go to governing because it was a, a, a negative mm, yeah, response. It was a different mindset. I wanted to mm. uh, lead in a positive way and to encourage genuine discussion, uh, which I did in the shadow cabinet and the cabinet and its processes, the National Security Committee, the Expenditure Review Committee, the other committees of Cabinet and our processes are working in a way in which there is a spirit of cooperation, a spirit of respect. You've got to enable people to say something that is inappropriate and, and uh, not the best suggestion without them being ridiculed mm. or having a go at them, uh, you'll only get a good idea if people are allowed to come up with a bad idea mm. and, and have a debate about it as well rather than everyone being silent and worried about yeah, saying the wrong thing that. or whatever. But also, though, I mean, just as a, you know, you're at the head of the queue um, and and you're right, there is this sort of sense of um, a spread of core, certainly in the government, but obviously the long-term risk, well, not even the long-term risk, given the way time accelerates in politics, right? It's sort of like you've got to manage rivalries, competitions between individuals uh, because everybody wants to advance, everyone wants to succeed. So, you know, how conscious of, are you of that? I mean, obviously we're only six months in. but it, it's, it's a competitive business, that's the truth, and that can often uh, be difficult for people to manage. Part of my management style is to give everyone respect for everyone to be able to contribute, not 
to there to be uh, just a, a small inner circle who get to dominate. Mm. And I think that if you look at what people are saying about the former government, I mean, the, it, the absurdity of going so internal and so uh, such a concentration of power so that the former Prime Minister chose to appoint himself to the multiple ministries as the opposite mm. <laughs> of leadership from my perspective because ministers clearly didn't even didn't even know that was was going on so i'm pretty transparent about the way that we're doing things in the the cabinet and 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 it goes back to 2019 uh I read recently uh, for someone who's doing a, a, another task, a, a, a book, read uh, the speech I gave on the day I became Labor leader. So that's kind of what we put in place. That's the template. And then the big speech I gave at, during 2019 when we had the review of these are the four stages, this is what we will do, and we did that mm. uh, and took people into our confidence as well said that publicly. I said, for example, we would have our 2030 target after Glasgow. Mm. I said that well in advance. That's a risk to do that mm. because people know what you're doing. But here again, we're mapping out for, we'll get into the policy stuff, but yeah. for 2023, we're mapped out. We will are doing national security issues here in the first quarter, the Defence Strategic Review, other activities. Uh, we have other reform agendas that we're taking through in the lead-up to the budget, budget in May. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the second half of the year we will have the referendum saying well in advance of what the timetable of that will be and the processes leading up to that. We've got the, the we'll get into to those as well. But I think doing that gives people the confidence that they're valued, that their ideas are worth putting the effort into and there are no ministers that are not, performing in my view and that's extraordinary that 30 people many of whom have never done this job before and many of whom have different jobs than they've ever done before are managing to deliver outcomes and change and do positive things for the country you would expect that if you pick 30 people then there's going to be yeah, ups you know, and downs or ups and downs, spectrum. But there's no one that I, I look at and I've, I've gone through with all 30 You've ministers. done performance reviews, what have you? The, well, what the plans are yeah. for Charter uh, letters this and so year mm. and what the plans are, what it looks like in 2025 as well. And that I find I get a great deal of satisfaction for how the government has begun, you know, on the front foot and and I think people are responding 
in that really positive way. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's do some issues now. And I think you've basically identified the ones that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the voice. I want to talk to you about the Defence Strategic Review because I'm not sure that the Australian community really has their head around that yet and how big that that is potentially. Um, and also just, anyway, we'll get into some other issues, but let's just start with the voice, right? Can you win this thing if Peter Dutton says no? Well, I think that the question's wrong and that's the, the first thing. It's not a matter of you um, as in me. So, you know, this is an opportunity for Australians. I, I have the same vote that you do that every person listening to this podcast does. This isn't something that's my idea. This is something that was first mentioned in the 1990s, came together, this current process really began in 2012. There was a five-year process leading up to Uluru and then since then. Uh, This has come from the bottom up, from meetings of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples saying, one, the what is recognition in the constitution, the how is through a voice Hmm. to parliament is what they want and they want that to be constitutionally enshrined. Now, it's something that I'm strongly, strongly supportive of and are are incredibly committed to. And I have faith that the Australian people, when they go into a ballot box, will vote yes. Yes. Is is there any universe? And I don't. I don't. I'm sorry to sort of ask two negative questions to to start with because it's sort of, in a way, it's the wrong tone. But but these are really essential points, right? Peter Dutton may say no. And, oh, absolutely. And, and and I think there are internal dynamics in the National Party, in the Liberal Party, and in the Greens Party. In part, what we're seeing is is their internal mechanisms playing out. So, yeah. I mean, you're right to chip me and say, I, Anthony Albanese, am not the single winner or loser of this, you know, of this process. You're right to chip me. Well, that's important. But I, I, I don't do it out of uh, any gratuitous means. It's important that uh, Australians know that, uh, and this is what gives me optimism, it's about showing respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the the wording, the draft wording that I've got out there says in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first peoples. That's how it begins, Mm. the recognition. So it's respect for them. But it's also about how we perceive ourselves as Australians. I think Australians will get a great deal of satisfaction by celebrating the fact that we do share this great land with the oldest continuous culture on earth and that that will be a positive thing uh, for people to embrace. And thirdly, of course, it's also about the way that the world sees us as well, whether we're a mature nation, whether we're prepared to acknowledge our history. Of course. But the point is, you know, rather like the marriage equality debate, I mean, obviously quantifiably different, but, but analogous in this sense, right? In the marriage equality debate, the majority decides the rights of the minority. Uh, we're going through another process now where the majority decides the rights of the minority. And because of the history of the country, what I'm trying to say is in the event that Peter Dutton says no and decides to make an issue of this, decides to blow this up, 
we are, you've got to countenance the possibility that the referendum fails because that's what history tells us. Of course, referendums right. have historically failed exactly. more than they've been successful. Exactly. So can I ask you this? Because uh, obviously you as Prime Minister have to uh, obviously try and move the country forward, but you also have a responsibility to the citizens of the country, including to First Nations people. Mm. Is there a universe in which you would countenance stepping back from the referendum if you judged it was not going to be successful? To not hold the referendum yeah. is to ensure that it's not successful. <laughs> so is the, so is the that, answer no? The, is the answer no? No is the answer because it, of course, is a risk to hold a referendum uh, where, uh, particularly where at the moment it is only the Labor Party that is saying uh, that they are committed to a yes vote. Mm. But it's like worrying about winning a grand final so therefore you don't run on the field and forfeit. (laughs) And that's essentially what it is. It would be forfeiting the opportunity for recognition in the form in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are asking for. So, so this process is locked and loaded. When, when, are, when are we likely to see the referendum? I mean, you're not obviously going to tell me the date today that the campaign starts, but when do we expect it? Well, the, the timetable is can be worked out pretty easily uh, because uh, you have uh, the machinery of of referendum, there's legislation at the moment, Uh, there's a committee report, will come down in the next uh, week or so when Parliament resumes and then that will be debated and carried, I would hope, uh, because we haven't had a a referendum this century, so Mm. that's got to be updated. So that's the first process. Then... uh, the process, the referendum working group is meeting in a couple of days' time. Uh, it's continued to work through along with there's a constitutional advisory group of eminent lawyers, former High Court Justice yep. and, and others working those issues through. And they're, they're looking at the wording of that. They're looking yep. at the wording. They're yep. looking at all of that. Yep. Uh, you will have legislation introduced during this period of sittings. So before the end of March, there will be legislation introduced to the parliament that will have in it the draft wording to be debated. There will be a parliamentary inquiry in which people can make submissions to it, uh, which will go for at least six weeks. Yep. And then during the budget sessions that begin in May and then June, you will have that debated and voted on and hopefully pass. Mm. Uh, it needs to pass. Yes, in well, order of to, course. It's a precursor order, of the referendum happening at all. In order yes. to have a vote. Yes. So the parliament will have a say and every parliamentarian will have a say yeah. and there will be a parliamentary process of a committee report leading, leading up to that as well. So that takes you up to June. Yeah. And then once the legislation passes, it has to, according to the Act, uh, be at least two months and 33 days. Yep. Don't ask me why that 
particular figures in there because that makes no sense to me why sure. it's not three months. But anyway, mm. it's two months and 33 days. Yep. Uh, I guess a bit like the 33 days for a federal yeah, election. Exactly. I assume that's why. Mm. has to be between that period and six months. So then it's then it's sort of it's September, isn't it? Thereabouts, thereabouts. August, between September, September, September and, and December. Yeah, between September and December. So that's that's the time frame. Okay, uh, which is uh, which is there, but it's also the process. Uh, this is uh, that is one of the furfies that's out there is that somehow there's, there's not enough information. There is this whole process and the danger. Of, of this as well is that people get, you know, overloaded with information and, you know, there's going to be an opportunity uh, for that to occur. What, what's interesting is that I put forward the draft wording in July mm. of last year at the Gama Festival. That's what people are actually going to vote on. I haven't had any Member of Parliament Yet, yeah, come up with come some. up with a single change of any word that's been put forward. What about uh, just on the sovereignty question? Because uh, the Green Senator Lydia Thorpe has raised this, and we saw in the Australia Day marches, Invasion Day marches around the country, there was a fair bit of purchase about this point at the grassroots level. Uh, she's concerned that saying yes to the voice is tantamount to Indigenous people ceding sovereignty. Does the government, I could see, it, I'll just tell you everybody listening, I've, you should see the Prime Minister's face. Look, there's a specific question. Do you have legal advice from the Solicitor General or eminent legal minds uh, that basically can guide the government on this question. Is there any risk that sovereignty is ceded? No, of course we have uh, legal advice about the whole range of questions and, and indeed the wording itself that's put up isn't words that, you know, I sat down in a room oh, and, look, and, oh, of and, course. and came up of with. Of course, so obviously. All, all, of, but... all of these issues, people looking for a... Distraction is is probably the the wrong word, but there there are some people uh, who either when they are of a hard right position or a hard left position come uh, to the same conclusion and are clearly cooperating of not providing support for what is being proposed overwhelmingly by you can call it the mainstream, call it the overwhelming majority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the lead-up to Uluru and, and ever since. Mm. The, the remarkable thing that has occurred in the stages of this process has been that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who haven't always agreed on a range of issues are on the same page. But it's not a... now, now. Not every not not everyone is on the same page. This is not a radical proposition. And I said the other day, it's not a radical proposition. It's not surprising that some people who are on the radical positionary, you know, you you have also a range of positions being put forward, uh, which also won't be advanced by this. This isn't going oh, to mean, mean like that... 
power of veto or all that sort all, of stuff. All of you that. Mean. It won't have power of veto. It won't be a funding body. It uh, won't run programs. Uh, it won't also uh, mean that uh, people's backyards is uh, is threatened. And so uh, you will have uh, people from opposite starting points, but they end up at the same point. Yeah. And and that isn't unusual in civil politics. No, no, that's right. And look, and some people obviously will oppose this because they, they are opposed to it and will find whatever means of, uh, of injecting that opposition, right? But these are basic questions. I just want to go just again to sovereignty, just so that we're clear. Well, this isn't, this, this no, isn't no. about that. No, this no. isn't about that, Catherine. So you can you can go down rabbit holes. I'm not going to assist you. No, no, no. Um. It's, well, well, no, no, but it, it's not in this sense, right? I think that there will be people in the community who hear that message, who hear that, that the voice means there we accept the white man's constitution. But, but and history has – one of the things that Noel Pearson speaks about very powerfully is that there are three parts, if you like, to Australia's history and all of them can't be just erased. One is Indigenous ownership of – this land for 65,000 years. Sovereignty never seen. The second is the fact that the first fleet arrived in 1788 and that changed our history. And, yes, there are some negative things with that, but there are also incredibly positive things with that as well. And that is important to acknowledge as well. And the third is that particularly in the post-war period, the multicultural development of the modern multicultural diverse society which we have here. Now, there are, are some people who want uh, everything post-1788 uh, to be erased. That is not my position. Mm. That is not the government's position. That is not something either which, in my view, has is a constructive way uh, okay. to move the nation forward. No, 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 sure. Uh, we, we share this continent. Everyone has a place in this continent. And some of the debates uh, that take place uh, are put forward views that, I don't share and that is why some of the, the debates that people are looking for, whether they be in some of the views that were put forward uh, on Australia Day, uh, you know, I, I don't think that Lydia Thorpe's views are representative of a majority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and I don't think they're representative of a majority of Greens voters sure, either. Sure, but, but just in terms of just one more and then we will move off this, um, but I agree with you that, that the sovereignty point and the voice are two separate propositions. It's sort of like ships in the night. But the point is, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask what is the impact of the voice on this sovereignty question because obviously Indigenous people say sovereignty was never ceded. Is there anything associated with the voice that obviates that point? It's about our history and it's about what it's about. And, and uh, the sort of argument uh, that is taking place is a bit like uh, some of the debate from 
others as well saying, uh, what is the impact on uh, definition of Aboriginality? Mm. There are a whole range of questions, which was one of the questions that, that Peter Dutton was putting forward. There are a range of questions, Catherine, which are not what this referendum is about. And one of the, the, the tactics to defeat the referendum is asking so-called questions uh, which have nothing to do with what this referendum is about. This referendum is about two things, recognition and consultation. That's what it's about, recognising Indigenous people in our constitution who currently aren't recognised and secondly, that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people should be consulted about matters that affect them. Okay. That is what it is about. All right. Let me move on to uh, unhelpful questions on defence. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, obviously the defence strategic review is coming. Let's just Can we start with a conceptual question and then I've got some specifics. How do you see the threat environment at this point in time? We live in an insecure world. We have a land war taking place in Europe where a large country has invaded a much smaller, less powerful country uh, which has sovereign borders, which has a democratically elected government and is attempting to change the circumstances there uh, through brute force, mm -hmm. through an illegal invasion. Uh, we have uh, a, a strategic competition in our own region with two great powers now, the United States and People's Republic of China, with competition in the region. Mm. Uh, so dangerous? Is that if well, you had to if you had to describe it in a word? I, I I don't think that one of the things that the Biden administration said when uh, Joe Biden became president and and my government has reflected as well as try not to reduce foreign and international sure, relations to, to single words. No, no, of course, but like, it's, like it's... it is it, it is an insecure world in which we need to put in place measures that increase peace and security in our region. Well, just picking up on that point, um, do you think that Australia needs to think more seriously than we have in the past about self-defence? Yes. Put simply, yes, we do. And, uh, and so what does that mean? What that means is uh, the reason why we're having the Defence Strategic Review uh, run by Angus Houston and Stephen Smith was what are the assets that Australia needs to defend ourselves or to deter uh, any uh, action against ourselves? Uh, where should they be located? And how is that uh, best dealt with in yep. terms of our capacity. Yep. So it's not necessarily just about, you know, well, we spent so many dollars. Was that the best use of every yeah. dollar? what are we spending the dollars on and it is, so on? Is a, a change from uh, the former government who had massive blowouts and, and a failure to deliver in many cases uh, what was committed to. 
So will this require this enhanced self-defence? Will this require more defence spending in total? I mean, look, because obviously in a budget, you spend money, you save money, right? Uh, In terms of defence spending, what are we looking at? Are we looking at more defence spending with not many offsets or what are we looking at? Well, I won't go through the budget process with you on your podcast here, Catherine, Um, but I think it's fair to say that there certainly won't be less. But we also are looking at appropriate value and making sure that uh, our capacity is increased. So so what what that means is that some projects may be advanced but maybe others are terminated or...? Well, that we're working through those issues, but it just means that uh, when you're spending a dollar, is it going to the right place? Yep is obviously what a defence strategic review is. And we know that there's been a change in the the warning times, if you like, of when conflict might occur as well. And that changes some of the dynamic of a sort. You, you, you mean would, it, it reaches you, you faster a, than... Yeah, you it? would have a 10-year window of, of conflict. Uh, that's not necessarily the case mm. anymore. Indeed, well, it, it's not mm. the advice. No. Uh, so we need to make sure that uh, we have the right assets. Uh, we're examining that. We're working through the AUKUS arrangements with the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, but we're also looking at our capacity in general here as yeah. well. Yeah, and, and I'd put it in uh, a framework which is even broader than the, the one that you started with, which is that one of the lessons of the pandemic is in general we need to be more self-reliant. We need to be less vulnerable to international shocks, which might be a health shock through a pandemic. It might be a cyber issue. It might be a supply chain issue or it might be a military conflict. Or it might be unreliable alliance partners. If, If we think about the United States, is Joe Biden going to be there after the next election? Well, that, of course, is a matter for the people of the United States. Uh, But uh, if you look at our interdependency in a whole range of areas, the pandemic uh, should have given everybody a wake-up call. call. In the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act is a major, major reform that will see the US become more self-reliant Uh, If you look at the range of areas, including the transition to renewables, you know, we need to make more things here. Mm. When you look at access to pharmaceuticals, we need to make more things here. When you look at heavy manufacturing, we need to make more things here. Defence capability feeds into that. And defence capability is a part of advanced manufacturing that has spin-offs as well. Can I ask you a question that I have always wanted to ask you and I've forgotten to ask you on a number of occasions? Just with AUKUS, which you mentioned a minute ago, obviously it's pretty important eventuality, let's call it that. Would Labor have pursued AUKUS if Scott Morrison hadn't, in essence, walked down that path and committed Australia to nuclear submarines from the US like if you well, AUKUS, AUKUS is not just about nuclear submarines sure, that's no. important yeah it's about 
our defence uh, arrangements, it's about interoperability. It's it to me seems when we had the decision to make, and I as Labor uh, leader um, was surprised by some of the analysis, which seemed to forget that there's nothing, if you take a step back, there's nothing terribly surprising by us having relations with the United States sure. and the United Kingdom. No, sure. The United States alliance was forged during World War Two, really, by Curtin, mm. who turned to America mm. in 1941 when it was so critical and then the alliance formally grew out of that over a period of time, and the United Kingdom, of course, well, colonial you know, is yes. uh, a very but, important part of but, our history but as hang well. On, hang on, hang on. But my question, though, isn't uh, you know does Labor want to do something with our alliance partners? That's that's not my question. My question is, would you have done AUKUS? Well, we weren't. That's a hypothetical question. Yeah, but, but it's interesting, isn't it? AUKUS, because it's, it's a sliding door moment. So, do you think that? Uh, no, I think that there would have been what your question leaves out. I guess it sees AUKUS as being an arrangement between politicians. AUKUS is an arrangement between nations Mm. who are friends. Whoever was in government would have had similar... So you think you would have got there anyway? ...defence, similar defence departments, defence... ...personnel, foreign affairs advice. Uh, And that's why our relationship uh, with both those nations has been pretty consistent Mm. over a considerable period of time, regardless of who has been in office at any particular time. No, no, sure. And and it's yeah, it's not a trick or a trap question. I'm just I'm I'm just genuinely interested. You you think you would have got there anyway. I I think um I mean we obviously weren't uh, a, a party to the arrangements and that was a decision that the former Prime Minister took, mm. even though he was asked to yes, uh, consult more widely mm. the, the opposition in it, but he chose not to do so. That says something about the United States as well and its understanding of the relationship between our two nations, mm. that it wasn't a relationship between political no, parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was much deeper than that. Mm. And uh, that's why the relationship is, I think, is so important. What's our interim solution? Because obviously these submarines, and, and we've made the point in this bit of the conversation, obviously, that, uh, you know, the defence reviews about more than AUKUS, obviously. So, yeah. right, well, we're obviously. working through. What's the interim solution? We're working through well, you could those share solutions it now with and the, we'll with be the having appropriate announcements. Yes, when? given appropriate processes yes. uh, that we'll work through. So you haven't decided our yet? Our cabinet. You haven't decided yet what the interim solution is? Oh, we've decided a whole range of things, but one of the things that I've decided even more significant than that is the way that this government will operate, which is that we operate properly, we have proper processes, we'll go through all of that, the cabinet will uh, confirm decisions that are made, but the National Security Committee uh, has been meeting regularly. We've been meeting already this year and we'll continue to uh, engage. We have our Foreign Minister and Defence Minister as we speak. Mm, Yes, in Gay Paris. uh, Mm. Overseas 
meeting with their French counterparts mm. and then the United Kingdom counterparts as well will be having a discussion and there's already been significant discussions uh, with uh, our friends in the United States. And uh, But timing, like approximately, obviously. I'm, said, I'm, I'm deakly disappointed for the record that you're not going to unveil the AUKUS uh, interim solution uh, on, the pod, on, but, on, on, yeah, on the pod. Unveil everything on the pod. We'll probably uh, do it uh, 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 in, yes, a, in a yes, bit yeah, of a, yeah, uh, a broader a broader context. A broader forum and perhaps in uh, in in consultation sure, as well. Sure, with the Allies, sure. Uh, but no, but what's the timing? Well, we've said uh, in the first quarter of this year. But it's it weeks We've said in the first quarter. Oh, so I'm getting nowhere with these questions. What's a, what's a quarter of 12, Catherine? <laughs> Three. Yes, yeah, I know. Well, well it's either weeks or months, the, isn't we're it? We're already yes. in the last okay. day of January. Okay. So, therefore. <laughs> okay, it's not the end. We'll look there. Yeah, another couple of months. Okay, some at some point in the next couple of months. Will you either go to Washington or Beijing this year, do you think? I fully expect to, well, I will be going to the United States this year. Mm-hmm. When? on at least one occasion and we'll make that announcement at an appropriate time. Hopeless, hopeless. uh, Because uh, that is, well, I I will be going to the APEC meeting that's being held. Yes, in the US, uh, that's right. In the United States in in October. San Francisco in either October or November. Mm. Uh, They haven't finalised a date yet. Yep. Uh, so perhaps you can. Yes, you will be going to get on them and yeah, you, finalize Sure, it. sure. You you yeah. you will be going to APEC, but I'm talking about. But I going, will be going yes. to the United States before then. Okay, b- before APEC. Before then. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, and, and Beijing. And, what, and the what, present. Well, I I don't have uh, one a, must a be invited meeting yes. there. Mm. Uh, president Biden has invited me to the United States, and President Biden will be here in Australia. As well uh, this year, of course, at the Quad Leaders meeting with Prime Minister Kishida and Prime Minister Modi. Yes. And I have extended to the President an Addressing invitation the when he comes to address the Parliament. Is that likely, do you um, think? Well, we're hopeful. It depends upon diaries and we haven't finalised the arrangements for the Quad Leaders meeting yet, the timetable that will be done as soon as possible, mm. there are a range of logistics sure. oh, involved. Sure. Oh, God, no, I, I don't. Uh, which are... I can't even... They would be unfathomable. Which so are extraordinary, sure. but we have a... Draft provisions are in place wow. of a venue and timing as okay. well. But we'll, we'll wait and... Watch this space. ...see confirmation. No, so. of course. Uh, and I'm very conscious you've been generous with your time and I appreciate it and we must be absolutely on the clock by now. Just budget, just a couple of things. Obviously, there will um, be one. <laughs> well, well, no, not only one. There'll be two. There'll be two. We did one in October and one yes, in that's true. one in May. There will be two in in the same financial year, because uh, you know this government is glutton for punishments. Uh, anyway, no, obviously there We've will be. We've got to give you something to talk sure, about. Sure. No, I'm totally up for the budget. I'm pumped. Um, so obviously that's uh, that's in May. Now there will be um, obviously well two things. Obviously energy rebates because of high energy prices will be a feature of that budget given the agreement you made, you know, over December in terms of rolling that out with the states. So there's a cost of living component in the budget. But there will also be, I'm sure you're acutely conscious and I can't wait for you to roll your eyes at the question, a drumbeat uh, amongst, uh, you know, well-meaning NGOs and others 
about the stage three tax cuts. We had this debate in October. We had a precursor debate about whether or not this was the most appropriate. Yeah, I know you're aware of the debate. The question's coming. In May, is there any universe where the government adjusts because you're not talking about scrapping them. I've never heard anyone talking about scrapping them. Is there any universe where that package gets adjusted in May? We have not changed our position. Yeah, but that doesn't actually answer the question. It does, actually. Well, well then can it, you express it more affirmatively because we haven't changed our position. It's exactly it. what we said last time. and mm-hmm. uh, So is the answer no? Nothing has changed. Is We're, the answer there, no? There's no debate going on about changing any arrangements for those uh, things in May. And we have not changed our position. Uh, Is is the answer no? Is the answer no? But then you get into Catherine uh, asking hypotheticals about a range of things on the budget. And you know you've been around for a long time, Catherine. Look, thank you. And you you know that people do not respond. No. To budget questions. No, 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 sure. That way. No, no, so no. people can go and speculate to their hearts speculate content. Speculate to their hearts content. Not very productive speculation, no, though, it's if not. you've got no intention. It wasn't last time. No. And, and it won't be this time. It won't be in May. Well, I haven't changed our position. Right. We have not changed our position. Right. Is there any universe where the position you can might ask be the changed. same question well, a see, different way see, but yeah, you'll get you'll get well, the same answer no sure but uh, but the persistence isn't madness the persistence just reflects the fact that the locution is slightly open-ended you're basically saying no. we haven't changed our position which which doesn't preclude changing your position if you feel differently in a week's time well Catherine <laughs> um, you know this is all I, I, I've noted that uh, the coalition are out there running a campaign one way and some other people will be out there running a campaign the other way and this is all about something of which a decision in May will have zero impact. Right. Oh, well, that's as definitive as I think we can get on that point. Well, but we, we have not changed our position. Okay. Um, in, in the budget, apart from... Um Obviously, uh, the the energy rebates, cost of living is a problem more generally, obviously, for people. 7% or whatever that dreadful inflation figure was the other day. Um, More interest rates rises coming down the pipe. Obviously, the government has been concerned about overheating the economy by putting more cash handouts or whatever in the mix. But what is most front of mind for you? Cost of living is uh, a big issue, which is why we designed the energy policy, the way that we have in a way that would take pressure off inflation, but also the fiscal position of the budget that we inherited with the trillion dollars of debt and not not much to show for it is something that requires discipline. It requires a responsible budget, which is what we delivered in October, and we'll deliver that. More savings. Again, in May, there are enormous pressures, spending pressures Mm. on the budget. Mm. One of them we've discussed Mm. is defence. Another is the NDIS. Uh, Another is aged care and health issues. There are other pressures on expenditure and one of the pressures on expenditure on the budget is debt that Mm. we inherited, Mm. where the increase in interest rates impact how much has to be paid on the debt. 
which is there as well. So that places increased pressure as well. Uh, so we are, are conscious about that, but we'll continue to, to work. The ERC is doing its work. Uh, we met this week. We met last week. We'll meet next week. Mm. Uh, continuing to do the the work of of uh, getting a policy agenda, which one of the things about the Labor Party is there's lots of ministers with lots of ideas. Uh, we can't do everything that we would like to do in our first year. Uh, we've been in government for seven months. Uh, we've done what we said we would do, plus some additional reforms like paid parental leave, the expansion of that. Uh, was in addition that came out of the Jobs and Skills Summit. But we will be responsible in how we do it because to do otherwise is to be counterproductive mm. because if it's not a responsible budget, it could place more pressure uh, because... Uh, yeah, well, it overheats, it all, overheats the economy, et cetera. Yeah, yep. so it, it's counterproductive. So we're, we're very conscious about that but conscious as well of... Uh, concentrating on the areas of productive investment that lead to a stronger economy down the track. So infrastructure investment, the National Reconstruction Funding, new industries and jobs, free-free TAFE, childcare is an economic participation mm -hmm. and productivity measure as well. So we're looking at those productive areas of the economy as well, how we drive productivity will be one of the themes of the budget. Okay, we might have a conversation sometime after the budget and I'm sure see, we would, well, see, see where the sum of human knowledge leads us. We might talk point. to each other before May, <laughs> surely, Catherine. Well, yes, yes, I think that's inevitable. Sadly for you, I think that's inevitable. Anyway, thank you, uh, Prime Minister, very much for your time. You've been generous with it and I appreciate it and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it. Thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, I'm sure you'll be interested in this conversation. You know where the Prime Minister is on social media. You can track him down. You can track me down. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week for the opening of the Parliament. See you then. God help us all. That was Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy, in conversation with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Alison Chan. Mixing by Camilla Hannan. The executive producer of this episode was Molly Glassie. Okay, catch you tomorrow.